Hey, Anna, remember that time we did this for the hundredth time? I'm your host, Amanda Webb. This is a podcast where two sisters totally geek out on all their favorite moments in history. And it is our 100th episode. For the 100th time, we're geeking out. Oh my gosh. I can't believe, believe, I cannot believe we've been doing this for 100 episodes. Yeah, it feels wild. And we're in the same room again. Yeah. (laughs) Which is nice. I like that we're in in the same room for our 100th. It was unplanned, but here we are. Yep. Um, Four years. Of the podcast, also yes. we hit just like a couple weeks ago, yeah. yeah, and and here we are. Wild, I can't believe it. Me either. It's crazy. Yay! Yay! Well, would you like a one hundredth drink update? Yeah, I'm having some uh, holiday blend coffee. Nice, because it's favorite type. Pretty early for us. This is maybe the earliest we've ever recorded. I don't, I don't know. think we've ever recorded any earlier in the morning. We've done an afternoon record before, but this we are recording before noon. I don't think we've ever recorded before I noon. I think we have at least once, but I don't know. Hmm. Who knows? Well, I am as steadily as ever <laughs> drinking some water. Because I just took a nap and I can't, my mouth's all cotton mouth now. <laughs> so it's going to be good that I'm going to be talking for a while I'm here. I'm tired, so that's yeah. why I have coffee. Yeah. Let's yeah. do it. Let's do Let's it. Let's do it. 100. So here's the plan for the 100th episode. Mm-hmm. We wanted to do something special. We're doing a special where we do both share like we've done before. Yep. And we have each chosen an event that happened 100 years ago. Yes. So, so 1922. 1922, <laughs> we've chosen major events and are kind of covering anything related to that event over the course of that year, yes. over the course of 1922. Yeah. And oddly enough, we both got to pick things that we are both very yeah. interested in. Like, yes. both of our topics were in our wheelhouses, which I wasn't really expecting to have happen. Yeah. Like, I knew we were going to find some interesting stuff, but I thought it was going to be, like, a little more scattered and random. But we yeah. both really got something that was, like... Already of our interest. And I thought I was going to change a couple of times, like, yeah. while I was doing my research. Yeah. Because I was like, no, I really want to talk about this. So, yeah. yeah, it worked out. Yeah. So, we're, we're this, I'm going to just go ahead and guess this is going to be a long one. Yeah, for so sure. So, strap yourselves in. <laughs> um, hey, it's 100 episodes. Baby. Yeah, yeah. If you're not, if you're not here for the long haul in the 100th episode, I don't know why you're here. Hello, <laughs> baby. All right. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. I am going to talk. About the Irish Civil War. Yes. Um, I have done an episode on the Easter Rising before. Right. The Easter Rising was one of the early events in the Irish War of Independence. Mm-hmm. So we're going to talk about how that ended and how almost immediately after the <laughs> Irish Civil War began. Yes. So Excellent. that's what we're getting into. So the Irish War of Independence was fought from 1919 to 1921. Uh, it was the Irish Republic who had established themselves um, fighting against England for a completely free and independent Ireland. They did not want to be a part of England anymore. Yep. (laughs) This is the hundredth time they've done this, but this one really went for a while and and saw some successes. Some, yeah. Yeah. Um, At the very end of 1921, the Anglo-Irish Treaty is created to bring an end to the fighting in Ireland. Right. Um, 
and we're going to pick up in 1922 because that's when it's signed in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the treaty did not create an independent Irish Republic like the Irish Republican Army or the IRA wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, instead, it created the Irish Free State. And the free state would be a dominion of the British Empire like Australia and Canada are. We're going to touch a little bit on the British Empire in my part, too. <laughs> it's, it's 1922. Yep. It's still, it, yep. it sure still is around. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. And it, ooh. Um, and it also allowed the six counties of Northern Ireland to opt out of the treaty and remain a part of the United Kingdom if they wanted to, which they did basically yeah. immediately. Uh-huh. They said, yep, we're going to stay. Yeah. Um, and the... We won't get into the Troubles in Northern yeah. Ireland during this. I'll probably do an episode on the Troubles at some point. Yeah, Anna wants to do an episode on the Troubles. And also, it's later. It happens yeah, later. It's, it's a separate um, conflict. Well, the Troubles were mostly, like, the it's much later. It's right. Like the 90s. Right. But it all stems back to yes. this. Yeah. To the the Irish War of Independence set up everything else that will happen oh, yeah, for Ireland. Oh, yeah, domino effect. Um, yeah, so they opt out almost immediately, and oh, I didn't take the time to look up how to pronounce all oh, of no. the Irish words, so we're just going to really commit to <laughs> what I'm pretty sure are the correct pronunciations. I do know a lot of these words. Okay. It's just been a while since I've done hey, it. Hey, listen, it's the 100th episode, Mary. It wouldn't be an episode of ours if we didn't know how to pronounce it. Yes. <laughs> I believe it's the Dolly Aaron. I, right. I believe is how you pronounce the Irish Republic's parliament. Right. Um. They ratify the Anglo-Irish Treaty on January 7th, 1922, by a vote of 64 to 57. It's very close. The British have already ratified this treaty. They've already signed it by a much larger margin. It was like 400 and something to like 50-something. But, well, they wanted to keep Ireland. So if this was the way they were going to keep Ireland and stop fighting in Ireland, this was the way they were going to do it. That's what they wanted. Um. On January 15th, a provisional government is established and chaired by Michael Collins. Yes. Now, I want to do an episode on Michael Collins okay. because that <laughs> this, this man. This episode is going to turn into yeah. all the things we're going to do yeah. other episodes Because he is fascinating. I'm not going to spend very much time on him in this because I need to do a whole episode mm-hmm. on him. Um, it's important to know. For Michael Collins and um, Arthur Griffin, who we're going to talk about in just a second, they were both a part of the IRA right. during the um, – Irish War of Independence, and they were both fighting for a free Ireland. They decided that this was the best way to end the fighting. They they didn't love the treaty, but they said, okay... Um, Michael Collins was quoted on basically saying this this made Ireland free to achieve freedom. Yeah, well, Ireland took a lot of hits yes. during the war. And yes. It did get to a point where they were like, we just have to end this. Yes. And we have to find best case scenario. And I think the it. way he puts it as well, free yeah. to achieve freedom. Right. The, they, we are already starting to see some of the signs of the downturn of the British Empire. Yes. And so I think they're thinking if we can establish ourselves like Canada and Australia right. in the future, we might be able to totally. separate. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so after the ratification of the treaty, um, Eamon Delvera, or Vira, I'm never sure which way to pronounce his name. Um, He had been the leader of the IRA, and he had established himself as the president of the Irish Republic. Right. Um, And he resigns as the president of the Irish Republic after the treaty, but he still disagrees with the treaty. 
So he is continuing to campaign against it. Mm-hmm. He basically set Michael Collins and Arthur Griffin up um, and, like, said, you guys go and be a part of the negotiations, even though he had already done some negotiation in England and had already decided that he wasn't happy with the way the treaty ended right. up in the end. He kind of set them up. He was more radical. He was very him. radical, yeah. yeah. There is an excellent film <laughs> um called michael collins yes um yeah and uh uh snape <laughs> alan rickman oh my god his <laughs> name just escapes me plays um amon yes and he's really right. good um and then arthur griffin becomes the president of the Dalieran right parliament um so him and michael collins are kind of in charge of looking over the provisional government and starting to set up the new government. They were both major leaders in the IRA, so they know the environment. That's what they're going for. Right. So because of uh, Devira's, Vera, I never know, Um, (laughs) because of his resigning and still campaigning against it and Collins being a part of the um, treaty talks, it's really split the IRA. Right. So there's a group of the IRA that are, pro-treaty and a group that are anti-treaty. And Collins is trying to reunify them uh, because they are going to, the free state is going to have its first election for parliament, for their parliament Mm -hmm. in 1922. So he wants them to run together Together. instead of split. Um, And so he basically says, if we run together in this election, I will try and make sure that our constitution is very Republican, like that it right. follows as much from the Republic as we can. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to keep that in. And they say, okay, we we can agree to that. But then I'm the- so sorry. I hiccuped partway through what you were saying. <laughs> I didn't want that to be like in the background of the audio, like <laughs> <laughs> just quietly while I'm talking. Yeah. Um, so, they they agree to this, but then the British basically says you can't do th- you can't do that. The sure constitution that you're trying to write goes basically directly against the treaty, and so Collins has to be like, okay, okay fine. I I mean I guess you're right, and we're yeah. still trying to keep the treaty intact. But he so just all these people exactly. So then they they all are mad at him they say okay well then we're not going to run together like that so the irish general election is on uh june 18th 1922 and they the pro and anti-treaty factions run separately but they both call themselves Sinn fein sure um which is Sinn fein is the political party basically branch of the ira through the whole war of independence probably should have discussed who's gonna get that name yeah (laughs) they, uh, they Voters know, you know, who, which yeah, but, which members are yeah. which type of well, yeah. Sinn Féin. But still, um, yeah, so they run separately in this election. Uh, the pro-treaty Sinn Féin members won more votes than the anti-treaty mm-hmm. members. And then the other parties who want, win seats, so like, you know, Labour and whatever. Right. Um, and remember, this is just Ireland's yeah. parliament. It's not part of... Britain's parliament. Um, the other members who win seats either are pretty neutral to to the treaty and don't really participate in anything or pro-treaty. Right. So it becomes pretty clear that most of the citizens of Ireland are at least neutral or pro-treaty because this mm-hmm. is how they voted, right? Yeah. Um, and they, they are okay with 
the and free the, state existed. And now the parliament is controlled by basically everyone is pro-treaty. Mo- mostly most pro-treaty, yeah. yeah. Um, or they don't care. Devera De uh, and his followers still oppose it and yeah. continue to be together. And they say, you know, we still think the treaty is a bad idea. And he's quoted as saying, the majority have no right to do wrong, which is... Which is a hard quote. I really like the Can't way that's yeah. With it's him there. I, I, I'm, yeah, um, but it's also like, dude, <laughs> we're really trying here to like establish uh, yeah. anything, and you're just still undermining everything that's going on. It's rough. But I mean, I get it. I do. He's, he had fought for the republic for so beliefs. long. Yeah. yeah, it's a really complicated situation they find themselves oh, in yeah. now. Um, so Michael Collins and Arthur Griffin are still tr- working on setting up a new government for the free state, and that includes setting up a new national army. Of course. And originally, the plan was to use the IRA as the basis of the new national army. They are already a major army force. Right, they right. just need to transition into being a national army force. But mm. there's still this major split right. in parties. So basically having them become the national army gives anti-treaty forces like access to weapons right right. which they do because they don't really have another choice they don't have a lot of other means of recruiting people they have no other existing army Army. exactly yeah Yeah, this at least was already established so because of all that on april 14th 1922 anti-treaty ira troops began occupying the four courts and several other important buildings in central dublin i put london there and i don't know why i was very (laughs) very tired tired when i was taking these notes last night you guys um in central dublin so it's like their four courts is their major political buildings um their goal is to start a new conflict with British troops, sure, so that they can reunite right. the IRA. They're they can say, to "Look, goad the Brits into exactly. an attack, so they can say we need to get back together. Exactly, they're still coming for us. Exactly. Yeah. However, because there are now there's now a whole faction of Irish citizens right. who are determined to make the Free State work. And there is a national army. And they don't want to fight again. Uh Uh-huh. It is instead an act of rebellion against the free state instead of against the British. Right. So they've shot themselves in the foot. Yeah, absolutely. Um, By doing this, they are now trying... It's treasonous ...forced to make the Irish fight against them instead of the British fight Mm -hmm. against them. Um, Arthur Griffin wants to send troops immediately, but Michael Collins is really hoping to avoid civil war. Yeah, of course. He doesn't want to have to send in their own troops. He's kind of hoping that the British will eventually give in and send troops so he doesn't have to. Right. Or they'll, or the IRA at this point will give up and leave. Exactly. Right. Um, so he leaves the oc- occupancy alone until like late June. Oof. They occupy the forecourts for a really long time That's in Dublin. A There's a lot of fighting in Dublin yeah. during this time. Um... Eventually, the British government is starting to lose patience. Sure. So, you know, Michael Collins really was like, hey, maybe they'll just send people. And now yeah. they're starting to get to that point. Um, they're mostly angry because uh, Field Marshal Henry Hughes Wilson, who was a security um, advisor to the prime minister of Northern Ireland, uh, was assassinated. <gasps> and... Um, he was assassinated by RIA members on his doorstep in London on June 2nd, 1922. And the IRA doesn't claim this publicly, but uh, the people in the know know that, that the IRA was in so charge of this. That's interesting to me. Yeah. You would think if they were trying to start a conflict, they'd be like, yeah, it was us. Come get us. Right. But it was by a, a 
prime minister in Northern Ireland. So there's still a little bit yeah, of that tension there, you know. Um, Winston Churchill assumes that it was anti-treaty IRA well, members sure. and not pro-treaty. And he told Michael Collins that if he doesn't do something, he's going to send um, British troops to attack the four right. courts. And eventually that gets shut down and kind of pushed to the side because Michael Collins is cut his hand as force. Yeah. He has to send in troops right. now. So Well, that's the other thing is like so they're trying to hold out to see if the Brit- the British will do something, but you know the British are also saying, "Hey, that's your responsibility clean now. Clean up your mess, yep. man. Look yep. out for your people." And they're not going to they're not going to budge yep. cuz fr- freaking Winston Churchill's in charge. Yes. So he won't budge until he has to. Yep. All very complicated. Yeah. So on June 28th, the Irish Civil War begins because the Battle of Dublin begins when the Irish National Army um, begins to bombard the anti-treaty Irish Republican Army forces in the Four Courts in Dublin. um, And they are using uh, arms borrowed from the British, which is a real, like, slight to the the, um, IRA in the Four Courts. Where else are they going to get weapons? Exactly. (laughs) Um, Fighting lasts in Dublin until July 5th. Um, eventually the, now that the, uh, anti-treaty IRA is being attacked, they can't, they can't hold out for very long. It's no. very similar to the Easter Rising where they can only hold out for as yeah. long as they could hold out. Um, the, the thing that I find so interesting about this and so frustrating because it's just the story of Irish history is that the British said, we are done fighting you now. Let's sign a treaty so we don't have to fight you anymore. But it didn't actually solve any of the angers and no, frustrations. So then instead they just said, instead of fighting us, we'll just make you fight each other. Yeah. And that's exactly what they did. They yeah. said, we don't care if you fight each other. And it's not just Ireland. Either. Yeah. And it's yeah. not like this is the only place exactly. this happens yeah. in the British Empire. Yes. Right? They are all for infighting. Yep. Because they know they'll come out on top because they've got the money and power. Yep. That's they all. said, we are done fighting this war now. We'll just let you guys fight it out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, we don't, we, but, and we don't care what happens. But, oh, but we want to keep you. Yep. So don't go so far that the other side wins. Yep. But, but you guys figured out. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I found this very interesting, this little just um, note from the Four Courts Battle of Dumbled. Uh Shortly before the surrender, a massive explosion destroyed the western wing of the complex um, of the Four Courts, mm-hmm. including the Irish Public Refer- Record Office, injuring many and. Ed- advancing free state soldiers and destroying the records government supporters alleged that the building had been deliberately mined historians dispute whether the public record office was intentionally destroyed by mines laid by the republicans on their evacuation or if the explosions occurred when their ammunition store was accidentally ignited by the bombardment they're they're not sure if they had intended to destroy destroy the the records records. Mm, that's interesting because, again, this is all so complicated. There are records that would have been useful to them there. Yes. And there are records that would have been harmful yeah, to them absolutely. there. So it's kind of hard to tell whether they meant to do it or not. Ireland. Yeah. Um, I'm skipping a lot of time because mostly it's just, and now they're fighting yeah. forever and, and then ever. they fought over here. Yeah. And then they moved over here and fought for Basically, the National yeah. Army starts to get control, basically, of major cities. Uh-huh. Um. They don't have great soldiers, but they are, they do have the numbers. Um, they get a lot of like World War One vets sure. able to fight. Right. And so they, the fighting goes on and on. Um, the IRA struggles. They, a lot of fighting happens in Cork, in West Cork. Right. That ends up being where a lot of the conflict occurs. And then on August 22nd, Michael Collins is assassinated 
in West Cork, which is his hometown. Oh. Yeah. Um, way harsh. Again, the movie Michael Collins. Oh, yeah. Excellent. Okay. Great telling of his life. <laughs> um, towards the end of the war, uh, at least in 1922, it starts to get pretty nasty. Like, yeah. they just get – it gets nasty. Um, so they're – the free state – has to begin um not has to but they begin executing republican prisoners um the ira prisoners that they right. had so on november 17th 1922 five ira ira men are fought shot by firing squad wow um and then on november 24th there was a treaty negotiator Erskine shoulders who was executed um and it just starts getting worse and worse and worse. Right. They had um, around 12,000 Republican prisoners taken over the course of the conflict at pretty close to this point. A few yeah. more after this. A total of 81 were officially executed by the Free State. Wow. The real number, they think, is closer to like 150 um, sure. of executions by the Free State that weren't official. Right. Um, that were just National Guardsmen executing yeah. prisoners or whatever. Um, starts to, starts to get pretty nasty towards the end. As civil wars tend to tend yeah. to do. Um, in the background of all of this, though, the uh, wheels of bureaucracy continue to of turn. Um, on October 25th, the Constitution of the Free State of Ireland is officially enacted. Right. Um, so they are, you know, the free state now, yep. able to have their own government that's not a provisional government anymore. Right. So on December 5th, the British Parliament enacts the Irish Free State Constitution Act, which legally sanctions it to be the new constitution of the Irish Free State. Isn't that messed up? Yep. That Britain has to say. Your constitution is Your constitution is, allowed. is officially your constitution. Get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and then on December 6th, the Irish Free State officially comes into existence. George V becomes the Free State's monarch. Yes. Uh, Tim Healy is appointed the first governor general of the Irish Free State, and W.T. Cosgrave becomes the president of the executive council. So they now have official leadership, not the provisional leadership anymore, not right. members of the IRA right. trying to scrape together some semblance of control for Ireland. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's sort of the end of 1922. The fighting continues into 1923. Eventually, the pro treaty forces end up winning. More conflicts later of will course. allow Ireland to become actually Ireland on right. its own, separate from England. But that's the end of the War of Inde Independence into the start of the Civil War. That was 1922. It was a wild year in yeah. Ireland. A lot happened. There are a lot of wild years in Ireland. Yeah. The conflict was very extreme in yeah. 1922. That was very interesting. Thank you. All right. Now it's Anna's turn. My turn. And we're going to a different part of the world. Yes, we are. But still part of the British Empire. Yes, indeed. But so, only for part of this. Only for part of this. Uh -huh. yes. So I am going to talk about the discovery of King Tutankhamun's tomb. Yes. Anna's only, you've only done, you did Cleopatra, right? I think yes. you did an episode on Cleopatra. I think Cleopatra. I've done two Egyptian queens, maybe? I can't remember. Um, Anna's very remember. into Egypt, though, which is not a thing she has done as much yeah. on on the podcast. But in actual life, Anna loves Egyptian I really history. I'm interested in ancient Egypt. Yeah. Now we're gonna we're touching on ancient Egypt today, but we're not like in that's me. not yeah. where we are. Obviously, it's 1922. Yeah. Um. But yeah, we're obviously gonna talk about ancient Egypt. I was a big geek for ancient Egypt in school, like yeah. in elementary school in particular. So 
this is very fun for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I probably will do a full episode on King Tut at some point. Mm-hmm. But today we're just going to kind of talk, talk about, about the discovery of the tomb and some other things that happened around the time it was discovered. We're obviously going to skip over a lot of stuff because this, again, could be its own episode, frankly. There's a lot that goes into um, digging up the Valley of the Kings and all that stuff. whole thing. So We're just focusing in on King Tut's yeah, tomb right now. Today. Yeah. Okay, so... The pharaoh, Tutankhamun, um, rules during the 18th dynasty in the New Kingdom mm-hmm. in Egypt. And he dies around 1323 BC. Um, he was around eight or nine when he took the throne. Right. A lot of people refer to him as the boy king. Right. He was so young. Um, and he was only like 18 or 19 when he died. He didn't rule for very long. No. Well, I mean, listen, his parents were siblings. He had a lot of um, health, <laughs> health issues. issues. Yeah. He didn't last very long. Um so when he passes away, he he is entombed into the Valley of the Kings, mm-hmm. um, which is near then Thebes, now Luxor, modern day Luxor, mm-hmm. um, and most of the New Kingdom rulers are buried there as mm-hmm. well. So typically, when a pharaoh would die, they would um, cut a full size royal tomb into the slopes of the valley. Mm-hmm. Um, but instead of doing that for Tutankhamun, he's actually interred in a smaller tomb dug into the ba- valley floor. Mm. Um, and it was probably modified to fit the massive amount of goods that he was buried with. Mm. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. All the stuff they find. Yeah, yeah. a little bit. Um, but after it's initially constructed, the tomb was actually robbed twice. And we're going right. to talk about why we know that later. But like back then, uh-huh. it was robbed twice and officials restored it and resealed it uh-huh. and they fill in the entrance with like limestone to try to keep people from breaking in mm. and then about two centuries after his death his tomb is actually covered from debris from the construction of the tombs of Ramses the fifth and sixth oh that tomb is known as kv9 when right they go and excavate it um so it's hidden underneath that a couple of massive Yes. tombs too and that means that it is hidden from more robberies right so that's why when again we're going to talk about the discovery here in a minute but that's why so much stuff is still in there nobody knew his tomb was down there or couldn't get to it right um so we'll get back to that in a minute mm-hmm. so i want to talk a little bit about how this all comes to be the exploration and stuff mm-hmm. okay so in the early 20th century egypt is a de facto British colony, right. like we were kind of talking about. They do have... So, sort of the way that Canada and Australia yeah, are a little bit. They have technically their own, like, monarchy still, mm-hmm. but... It's like a sub-monarchy under the British yes, monarchy. Yeah. they're controlled by British officials, uh-huh. basically. And then during this time, Egyptology starts to it's all the it's popular. all the craze yeah well it's going to become more mm. a little bit but so it, it's the study of ancient egypt and it's overseen by the antiquity service which is a department of the egyptian government mm. however at this time where we are right now it is technically being controlled by the british mm-hmm. um but museums and private collectors of ancient artifacts fund digs in egypt um, in exchange for a share of the artifacts, right. usually about half of what is that belongs in a I museum. Know, right? For real. Um, so they usually the person who funds the dig gets about half of what's found, and then the rest of it goes to the antiquities service and its museum, the Egyptian Museum in Cairo, mm-hmm. not Cairo, not, and also <laughs> not in England. 
important right. note. <laughs> yes. Most of the time at this time, when the British are funding or any part, a part of excavations, they steal everything they oh, yeah. find. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, okay, so a lot of the tombs in the Valley of the Kings have been opened since ancient times. Mm-hmm. Um, they got like, robbed a lot, right? And people were already touring them by this point. Right. Um, but lots of others, like, the entrances had been deliberately hidden, mm-hmm. um, or some of them had been uh, hidden or washed away by flash floods. Um, debris from other digs mm-hmm. sometimes hides them. Well, when you're going to bury that many people all in one place, that's all bound to have, you know, yes. all the stacking and the yeah. stuff it's filled with. and. But when they're doing these early digs, like, they do find a lot of royal mummies. They mm-hmm. find... A decent amount of stuff but up to this point they haven't found anything complete they haven't found a complete set of royal burial equipment basically essentially untouched yeah yeah yep okay so we're gonna go back a little bit no we're talking about 1922 but we got to start in this point to get you some context so in 1899 howard carter very essential to today's mm-hmm. story is appointed inspector of monuments for upper egypt in the egyptian antiquity service So he had actually come to Egypt as an artist, and he was assigned to record the Egyptian tomb art. Oh, cool. So that's how he started working there, and then Uh later he trains as an archaeologist um, and kind of works his way up. Um, And he needs some money to fund a lot of his digs, so his patron becomes the American Theodore M. Davis. Davis... Funds a lot of digs. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And they don't go well. Like, he doesn't... This is where you get the era where they were just kind of digging through everything. Nothing's being treated right. Mm -hmm. Things aren't being taken care of. So a lot of stuff's getting destroyed. protocols aren't followed. Because it's just about find the stuff, sell it off. Uh Or find the stuff, keep it for your collection. Literally an Indiana Jones villain. Yes, That's the energy of the character. Of this person. So, you know, there's a lot we could go into with those digs with Davis, but we're going to skip over that for time's sake. Yeah. Um, eventually, in 1905, Carter actually ends up leaving the Egyptian Antiquities Service, but then he goes to work as an excavator for George Herbert, the fifth Earl of Carnarvon. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but we're going to call him that for the rest mm-hmm. of the time, so Committing. good luck. Um, and eventually... Carnivon does buy the concession for the Valley of the Kings from Davis uh, when he relinquishes so his he control. can stop messing up that area. <laughs> yeah, eventually it's like I don't know if it's exactly like this, but think of it as like um, Davis's contract of that area basically comes to an end. Got it. And okay. he gives it up, and Carnivon buys it in 1914. Mm-hmm. So now he's kind of back working in, in the valley. valley. Um. So in 1917. Carter starts to clear the valley. We'll hear this term a lot in archaeology, clearing this space. Mm-hmm. He wants to bring it down to its bedrock. He wants to get all the way down to the valley and, see and what's find down what's there. down there. Yeah. Um, Can I just another quick with one fun fact about me? Yeah, of the course. The first job I ever remember wanting. I remember this. I wanted to be an archaeologist. Yeah, Because I liked this stuff when I was a kid. Yeah. And I only remember this because in first grade, I had to do an all about me poster, and one of the questions on it was, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" And I remember having to ask mom how to spell archaeologist. I remember that. Yeah, you and want, I remember that. And one I didn't you. want to be an archaeologist for super long. I mean, it was probably like kindergarten, first grade, and then 
Uh, maybe say, a little later a after that. Decent amount into elementary school before you started getting into um, Japanese history. Yeah. yeah. And then I also later learned that I probably more wanted to be a paleontologist because I was... It, you was, into it was more the dinosaurs that I was into. Yeah. <laughs> but I did still find, like, all this stuff really interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I remember remember liking Indiana Jones yeah. even pretty young. And that. so I just, I very distinctly remember having to ask mom how to spell archaeologist for my All About Me poster. <laughs> Everybody else was like, that, or like, teacher. teacher. And I was like, yeah. archaeologist. <laughs> it's very mean. And then he became a teacher. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so like I said, he's trying to clear it down to its bedrock, and they don't necessarily say that they're looking for Tutankhamun's tomb, but they kind of in the background the whole time. They know it. They believe it hasn't been found yet. Right. Right. There's nothing to show that they've found that any of the royals they've dug up so far are him. Uh huh. So they so they know it has to be in there somewhere because they know he was a ruler. Yes. So he should be in the valley somewhere. Exactly. Okay. Okay, so jumping ahead a little bit to 1919, we get the Egyptian Revolution against British occupation. Yes. Um, and we're not going to talk about the revolution because that's not what this episode's about, and mm-hmm. it would take a long time. But it is important to our story because what ends up happening here is the uni- unilateral declaration of Egyptian independence occurs in February of 1922. We made it to 1922. Yes. <laughs> and with that, the UK still has some influence over the government. Um, particularly like the military and foreign affairs, but the antiquities um, service is retained by the Egyptians. Which is good. It's what they give up. Good. Essentially. They say, that's in your hands now. Mm-hmm. Um, so when this happens, the antiquity service retains its incumbent director at the time, Pierre Lacal, um, but now he answers to the Egyptian ministers instead of the British ministers. Mm-hmm. So... That's, like, where we are. Mm-hmm. We're digging in the Valley of the Kings. The Egyptians are, they are in control of the digs. Um, and they, there are teams of Egyptians working with um, the other Carter people and Car. I can't remember how to say his name. Carnarvon. Uh-huh. <laughs> They're working with them. Okay. So, 1922. Here we are. It's happening. Carter and Carnarvon are paused in their work between digging seasons. So, in... Egypt, when they're digging, the season is typically from November to April. When you hear them talking about seasons, uh-huh. this is what they mean. Because they stop after that because the heat is so, so extreme. Yeah. They can't work. Especially because they're out in the desert. There's yes. no protection from the sun or anything. Exactly. Yeah. So they stop work then. And at this point, there's only one section left in the Valley of the Kings that they haven't gotten the debris off of yet. Mm. But they're not finding what they're looking for. And this area is really difficult to clear because it has the remains of ancient workers' huts near it and on it. Oh. Um, it's around the entrance of KV9, which uh-huh. we referred to earlier. The, the Ramses' tombs. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of tourist traffic there. Ah. So during the season when they're digging, this is also the season when the tourists come because, because it's not too hot for yeah. them to be out. So it makes it really hard. And Carnarvon is thinking about abandoning the excavation. He's like, I don't think we're going to find it. It's, just, it's too difficult. I don't know if we're going to be able to do it. And Carter offers to pay for it. He's like, we're going to, I want to get this I done. I know there's something in there. Yeah. So he offers to pay for it. Carnarvon is very impressed by his initiative. And he goes, you know what? Okay, I'll pay for one more season. But if we don't find anything, like, that's it. Mm-hmm. 
So on November 1st of 1922, Carter and his Egyptian workforce go back to work and they start excavating this final section. Mm -hmm. And on November 4th, by the way, November 1st is like early. They don't usually start start immediately in November. He's He's trying to get as much money as he can out of the season. Absolutely. On November 4th, one of the workers uncovers a step in the rock. Mm. There are a couple different ways they like Carter in his official counts says that it was somebody actually t- intentionally digging there. Mm-hmm. Something else says that it was like this other person kind of went rogue and was digging somewhere they weren't supposed to. Mm. There are a couple, but yeah. that's what Carter says it was on purpose. Yeah. Um, and Carter writes in his pocket diary on this day first steps of tomb found because he's so sure that that's he has what decided this is. this is definitely a tomb yeah. and we're gonna look. I mean, it certainly is. There are mm-hmm. steps, right? Um, and it does. It proves to be the entrance of a tomb, a staircase. And at the bottom, there's a sealed doorway with limestone and plaster. And Carter cuts a little peephole in it mm-hmm. to look inside. And he can see that there's rubble in there, meaning it's been, you know, there's stuff in there. Uh-huh. He sends a telegram to his partner, Carnivon, mm-hmm. who is in England at the time. And then the workers refill the pit until mm. he can get back to Egypt because they don't want people coming in. Yeah. And they don't want the tourists messing with it. They don't want other diggers to and try and get into it. There are certain protocol that they have to follow, which we're going to touch on a little bit later. Like, there are certain things that, like, officials need to be there to see X, Y, and Z happen because now we're trying to do it in a way where things are protected and recorded. Mm-hmm. So we have to make sure it's recorded. The person Everything funding it is there be, helping with the recording. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, Egyptian officials, I think, should be there most of the time. And they, if I remember correctly, and they want to record, like, here's where everything was when we looked at it, right? Mm-hmm. In case and, somebody snags something, then they'll know. It. Yeah. Well, yeah. And also, it's important, like, okay, so we're there. Th- we'll talk when about it. When you're studying the history of it, you need to know where we'll that talk all about was. It again yeah. In a um, okay, so. Digging resumes on November 23rd, and that sealed doorway, they discovered that it is inscribed with the name of Tutankhamun, Um, so this suggests this is probably, for real, his tomb. Mm -hmm. And then on November 26th, they reach another sealed doorway. Um, I like this quote. Um, Carnivon asked Carter if he could see anything. Accounts differ as to the wording of Carter's answer. In the best-known version in his book, Carter replied, Yes, wonderful things. Oh, I love that. So you could see that it was full of stuff. Yeah. So they get in now, Mm -hmm. and this first room becomes known as the antechamber. You hear this a lot when you're talking about um, his tomb. It's full of stuff. Mm -hmm. There's furniture and statue. I mean, it is full. You can see pictures of it. It's packed Mm -hmm. with stuff. Um, and How lucky are we that they got to? They found this at a time where we could take photographs of all yeah. that stuff, just to be yeah. able to see it all it's as amazing. it was right when they found it. It's very cool. In the antechamber, there are two doorways, um, kind of leading out. One of it, one of them has been left open, and that's how we know there was a break in. Oh. Because you can, it was open from a pre- previous vi- break in, and you can see objects inside. A lot of the objects in the in the antechamber have. Tutankhamun's name on it Mm -hmm. and this is how we kind of go okay no doubt now this has to be his official burying place right Mm -hmm. why else would all this stuff have his name on it right um at some point they breach the other doorway that is still sealed Uh uh-huh um and Carter Carnivon and Evelyn Herbert who is one of the people who came for the day um uh it's Carnivon's daughter Uh um they 
apparently squeeze through the hole that they've made to to see what's inside and they find that it is the burial chamber Mm -hmm. um lots of shrines and and his sarcophagus Mm. they see it in there um, this indicates that the robbers before had not made it to the burial chamber. Which again, they had left that untouched. Thank God, that's awesome. Like, know, that's that amazing that they only bothered to make it into the first one, yeah. or only had time to make it into the first one, or whatever. Right. Yeah. Um. So then they they come back out and they reseal the burial chamber. Mm-hmm. Now this becomes controversial mm-hmm. because they probably shouldn't have breached that room. Mm-hmm. Um. Carter wanted to make sure this was really it because uh-huh. on a past dig, he had thought he had found another burial chamber and it turned out to not be uh-huh. what he expected. So that the general belief is that he entered the, the burial chamber before he was supposed to, because he wanted to, to make sure that it was before him. he told people like, Hey, we found it. Right. Uh-huh. Um, but basically like, you know, some people said it's really okay, but the, the controversial issue is that, they probably had to move a couple things to, to get, get in, in. and mm. now they can't record where those items were. And it is a full, it's a full, perfectly set. preserved so burial. Now chamber. we aren't sure where did they place these specific items, mm. and and can we figure out why? Mm-hmm. So it's like a big chunk of it that kind of gets, got lost, gets sullied. Yeah, right. Um, that's the general kind of belief, right? Mm. So. Okay, so now they're trying to clear the antechamber um, because there's so many artifacts in there. And this takes a massive effort mm-hmm. for a few reasons. Um, moisture from flash floods in the valley ab- above the tomb had seeped in uh-huh. over the centuries. And kind of the humidity and dryness had warped some of the wood, um, dissolved glue on certain things, caused leather and textiles to decay, so it mm-hmm. wasn't in as perfect condition as we would have hoped. Mm-hmm. Um, exposed surfaces were covered with an unidentified pink film. Um, I don't know what that was, but, um, you know, it took it took a lot. Um, I liked this quote. Carter later estimated that without intensive restoration efforts, only a tenth of the burial goods would have survived being transported to Cairo. Wow. So they they worked very hard mm-hmm. to make sure it was uh, done. done correctly. Yeah. Um, on December 16th, they start clearing more of the artifacts out. And um, Carter says that it is so crowded with objects that it's hard to move around. Right. Um, okay. And this is where it gets like big so the the tomb because like we said there are tourists coming Uh to the valley now while they're still excavating it Uh and this gets people very excited right and it begins what is known as tut mania (laughs) which is you know the western westerners freaking loved king tut right they were all in it yeah there's a big media frenzy carter and carnivon become very famous Mm -hmm. um and this is when people start referring to tutankhamen as king tut right because they don't know how to say it probably because they've never tried um and so but they it becomes like familiarized like Mm -hmm. it's a little king that we know right king tut um tourists start flocking to the site mm-hmm. and like while they're still actively working which has to be very annoying for well, the workers they're crowding around the retaining wall uh-huh. that is surrounding the pit 
And they're, like, the excavators are afraid that because they're kind of, like, pushing on, that it's going to collapse. Right. There are too many people there. And then you have the problem of, uh, quote-unquote, important people (laughs) wanting to go into the tomb and Uh look at it. Um, And they have to appease some of them Uh because probably a lot of them are offering a lot of money, you know, that kind of thing. But they don't want any of it to be disrupted, the goods or the schedule, the work schedule. Um, Carter and Mace estimate that a quarter of the work time during the first season was given to accommodating these guests. That's crazy. Isn't that wild? And they have so much to do. There's so much in there. Yeah, for real. Um, I'm just, this is more of the cultural relevance Mm -hmm. of it. Um, people outside of this area start to pick up on it and get excited about it. Guests at the Winter Palace Hotel in Luxor dance to the Tutankhamun rag. <laughs> um, and in the U.S., there's, oh my gosh, Egypt-themed stuff goes crazy. Yeah. They start making Egypt-themed films. Uh-huh. Um, there's a hit song called Old King Tut, <laughs> which I remember hearing when I first learned about him. Um, and there are lots of books written about ancient Egypt. I mean, they really jump on it. People yeah. start, like, actually writing books and... Um, start like trying to capitalize on this trend which of course leads to a lot of like wrong information Uh and a lot of cultural appropriation Uh and you know people just like i like glamorizing this you know thing they know nothing about it's very Mm -hmm. interesting um and also like something i found interesting that i didn't actually put in my notes but i found this interesting to read was that like in egypt in the century prior to this, it like ancient Egypt wasn't really something that was super relevant to their culture. All huh. the time. Like they didn't embrace it that right. much. But then this might have been one of the oldest cultures, like well, that we it, know of. Before and, it yeah. might have been, but at that time, it wasn't like quote unquote trendy. I don't right. know what else to call it. Like yeah. it just wasn't in their lexicon really uh-huh. um, until this happened, and then they it started to become really culturally relevant right. to them um, in a big way, not just in the commercialized way. Uh-huh. I just found that really interesting. That is very interesting. Um, replicas of the artifacts that they find start appearing as early as 1924 <laughs> um, because the British Empire Exposition does a reproduction of the tomb ah. before they've even finished getting all right. the stuff. So they reproduce what they know of, but there's more in there mm-hmm. that they don't know about. Um. The public in Europe and the U.S. start start comparing everyday items to items that are found in the tomb, which then leads to, like, them making Egyptian-themed, quote-unquote, like, house home mm-hmm. goods, um, clothes, jewelry, huh. that kind of thing, um, with Egyptian-inspired designs. Um, so... The antechamber is almost entirely cleared by mid-February, and on February 16th, Carter and Carnivon officially open the burial chamber with the government officials mm-hmm. there. Um, I, this is not relevant to the initial discovery, but I just, like, we're not in 1922 anymore, but this is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the east end of the burial chamber, there's an open doorway to a fourth room that they call, later call the treasury. Mm-hmm. It has the canopic chest that housed Tutankhamun's embalmed organs. Right. Um, and then uh, Carter eventually has the entrance to that boarded up so that 
because they're gonna have more clearance and stuff in the chamber. He mm-hmm. doesn't want that to be a distraction. He doesn't want people entering that till they've finished. They will the do other it very stuff. carefully, room by room. Exactly. Yeah. And then it was only reopened in 1927. So for them to finally get to, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the tomb is closed for its first season on February 26th. Um, now this is interesting. So shortly after the tomb is closed, Carnivon accidentally cuts open a mosquito bite on his cheek while he's shaving and the wound becomes infected. And after weeks of illness culminating in blood poisoning and pneumonia, he dies on April 5th. Yes. And we all know this story because it really pushes forth this idea of the quote curse of the Pharaohs Uh or mummy's curse. Right. Which becomes a huge cultural yes. phenomenon. People think that if you enter an Egyptian tomb, there is a curse. Have you seen the film The Mummy? Yeah, right? Fantastic flick. Yeah, for real. Um, now, there was no written curse documented from King Tut's tomb. Mm-hmm. So There were some for other ones. There were, yes. yes. There were, um, but a lot of them are actually on non-royal tombs mm. that predate king tut oh which sure. kind of suggests it was like a belief that was held before his time a cultural sort of. thing from before he was around mm-hmm. sure yeah for sure but of course there are several deaths associated with king tut's tomb and and, and lots of about. like accidents okay. and mistakes yep. and things like that that uh-huh. people that lead people to really hold on to this they idea. attribute it to the curse yeah. Yeah. basically so like i mean now they think they might like today, where we are, uh-huh. they think they might have found Cleopatra's. Right. Which is wild. I'm freaking out about it. Um, but everybody's like, hey, don't go in there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Which is like, yes and no. Right. Uh-huh. Um, okay. So just to wrap it up and just to talk a little bit about like the significance of the burial chamber mm-hmm. real quick. In their next season, that's when they officially enter the chamber and they start um, kind of excavating that. So they disassemble the shrines, Mm -hmm. and then they rig a system of pulleys to lift the lid of the stone sarcophagus, which was hard because it had cracked. And you have to be so careful. Yes. To even keep the pieces together after it cracks. Yeah. And on February 12th, the lid is raised, which reveals um, beneath a shroud, a gilded and inlaid wooden coffin in human shape Mm -hmm. bearing Tutankhamun's face very famous mm-hmm. um and the out the outermost of a nested set mm-hmm. and it is the first complete set of royal coffins ever found in Which Egyptology. crazy crazy and then his death mask became very famous obviously yeah. um but yeah that i mean that's the initial discovery there's a lot more about the excavation of the tomb and of mm-hmm. course about himself but and about all of the other drama with the other yeah i didn't want to get too much into all that because we would have been here forever yeah but um yeah that was the i mean it a major Uh historical discovery amazing yeah 1922 crazy year weird year man there was lots of really interesting stuff we found like there was a ton of stuff we could have touched on that we didn't um there were a lot of options for things we could have talked about this year Uh, when we first had this idea i was a little worried it was going to be like this is a boring year and like we weren't going to be able to find anything but i think not boring i know but like just you you never know when you pick a specific year you never know what you're gonna find contain yourself um but we found we both found lots of yeah interesting stuff um i had this idea okay um where we always talk, we, we do Modern Times is one of our segments. Yes. And we talk about things. Should I do the song? Should, do you want to do it? Sure, sure, sure. Okay. 
History's great, but today is good too. What's your favorite thing about modern times? It's modern times. It's a segment of the podcast where we talk about the things we like about the year and now. So that's not exactly what we're doing. Right. Um, but because we talk about things that we like that have been invented since, yeah. or that exists now, since the long history that we were talking about, I thought it might be interesting to go and look at some modern conveniences or things that we still use that Ooh. were invented in 1922. Yes, I right? love that. So I found this article, Tomorrow's World Today, who knows? <laughs> anyway, it was just, it's Inventions Turning 100 in 1922. Nope, in, two, in 2022. In 2022, <laughs> oh my gosh. Turning 100 in because they were invented in like 1922. Us. Just yeah, kidding, yeah. But okay. Um but it's interesting. Okay, There's just some stuff that we still use. So convertibles. Yes. First invented in nineteen twenty two. I'm not gonna get into any of the stories no. of this just because I think it's interesting. Water skiing. The first person ever to go water skiing that happened in nineteen twenty two. Interesting. Uh-huh. Um the radial arm saw. <laughs> Fascinating. Sure. So you can do home. For work better men to use yeah that's there's like an ad here and <laughs> yeah. it's like yeah it makes everyone an expert yeah, and mom sure. and the kid are watching from a safe distance <laughs> well i wouldn't call it a safe distance <laughs> um the audio meter it's a medical device yeah uh this one we fully could have done yes. part of the episode on insulin yeah the first um insulin treatment for successful diabetes. insulin yeah. treatment in happened, canada yeah in 1922 yeah. Uh, the 3D movie. Could have done without that one. if it. But as early no, as 1922, no, there was technology for the 3D movie. Um, mail subscription services, which, boy, howdy, do we still use <laughs> no, today. Right. Um, here's a, here's another one. My favorite one. That we, co- again, could have done a full episode on. Girl Scout cookies. Yes. There will be a Girl Scout episode Absolutely. eventually. Um, but the first Girl Scout cookies uh, were sold in July of 1922. Thank goodness. Uh, quick freezing foods. Great one. And here's another one we totally could have done an episode on. Yeah. The British Broadcasting Company. Yeah. The BBC is turning 100 this year. Still going strong. Baby. Indeed. Or turned 100, I guess, in October, yeah. but still. Wow. So that's that's it. 100, 100 episodes. episodes of this Should podcast. Should we cheers with my mug in your plastic water bottle? Absolutely. To 100 episodes. Oh, that's a disappointing sound. <laughs> I don't even know if that's going to pick up on the audio. It was not good. Yeah. Well, it's been really fun. Yeah. I... Loved doing this podcast. I'm excited to do a hundred more. more. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, yeah maybe. Uh, if we can keep finding the time and thinking about things to talk about. Which I, I frankly am shocked we made it to a hundred. Like I'm not, but I the am. Commitment. We keep find I just am yeah. delighted that we keep finding things. Me too. Like I that's mean, we have a long list. It's more the like commitment to do yeah. it. Yeah. But um yeah, it's been really fun. I hope all of you listeners have enjoyed hundred episodes mm-hmm. with us. If you haven't listened to all hundred, if this is your first one, welcome. I'm mm-hmm. so glad you're here. Um, we're getting ready to do holiday uh-huh. soon. I don't know if we'll have two this year or one. We're still not totally sure, uh-huh. but it will come next month, mm-hmm. um, one way or the other. Can't believe it. Yeah. Um, but if anybody has any suggestions for topics they'd like us to talk about in one of the next hundred, mm-hmm. please let us know. Um, you can email us at rememberthatpod at gmail.com. You can also find us, well, on Twitter for now. Um, we'll see how long Twitter lasts. At time of recording, it still exists, uh-huh. and we are at RTT Pod. But if it goes down, my friends, we're also on Instagram and Facebook. Um, don't worry, you can still find us on the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, and we would love it if you would give us a rating and review wherever you listen to our podcast. Hey, in case you missed it, we're on Spotify now. Yay! That's exciting. 
Um, Took almost 100 episodes, but we're there. We did it, <laughs> finally. Um, and if you would like to find me on the internet, I am at the real Anna Webb. And I'm at ACW Nerdfighter. Wow. High five. We that did it. That was also not great. Hey, I, I, I can <laughs> see the sound on the file, though. It's a really bad high five. Yeah. But that's okay. We did it. 100 episodes. Can't believe it. Yeah. Um, well, thank you all for listening. Um, like I said, I don't know what will be yeah. next. But um, until next time. Remember that time.